All right, go ahead and take your seat if you're able to. Actually, go find where you're at, but I want you to stay standing. I want you to, I want you to stand up if you're able to. I need everyone to participate, so we got a few guys in the back back there, Zach and Tony, even. We got a, I got some Purim trivia for you guys. I'm going to do a, a last person standing. So the winner is the last person who's still standing, and we're going to do it. So I'm going to give you, this is all, you know, an uh, either or. So I'm going to give you a choice that's either raise your right hand or raise your left hand um, for this. And we'll see who the last person standing is. So, so this is our Purim trivia. Here's our first one, okay? There is a uh, children's song called, My Hat, It Has Three Corners. Which group used it first? The Ameri- your right hand, the American revolutionaries, or your left hand, Jews making fun of Haman? That's actually a trick question. Neither group used it. Uh, okay, you, know, you can all stay standing, okay? Real question. Okay, I'm going to start with some easy ones. Real question. Uh, what city was Esther living in at the time of the story? Right hand, Susa. Left hand, Nineveh. Okay, all of you who have your right hand raised, stay standing. It was Susa. So if you, didn't, if you said Nineveh, sit down. All right. Um, tradition, what is the traditional dessert at Purim? Right hand, hamantaschen, left hand, sufganyot. It's good. Keep your, if, stay standing if you raise your right hand for hamantaschen. Otherwise, sit down. Um, sufganyot is Hanukkah. There we go. Um, let's see. Uh, n- next question is uh, a little bit harder. These are going to be increasingly more difficult. Uh, how long was it between Vashti and Esther being queen? Right hand, five months. Left hand, five years. If you raised your left hand for five years, stay standing. It was five years between them being... Okay. Remember, there was, there was a beautification period that was longer than five months, okay? So that was your, that was what I wanted you to remember. Okay, here's the, the next one. How tall in cubits were the gallows built to hang Mordecai? Was it right hand 30 cubits or left hand 50 cubits? Say, standing if you said left hand 50 cubits. 50 cubits tall. All right. Um, number, the next one is uh, How long did Esther reign as queen before Haman's threat? Was it right hand four months or left hand four years? can stay standing if you said left hand four years. 
Yeah, we're getting closer. All right. Uh, here's the next one. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah returned to build the temple right hand before Esther or left hand after Esther? It was left hand after Esther. You're right. So stay standing if you said after Esther. Um, all right. Let's see if we got, we got two left here, or three. Do we have three? We've apparently still got a Sam in the back, too, and maybe an Aline. I don't know if she was playing the whole time. <laughs> All right. I got two more questions left. We'll see if we, we'll see. And then I got a tiebreaker if we, if we need one. Um, the, the second to last question is, in the extra-biblical or apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, what did they call Purim? Right hand, they called it Mordecai's Day. Left hand, they called it the Feast of Esther. It was, stay standing, you said right hand, Mordecai's Day. Did I, I knocked everybody out there? Uh, it was Mordecai's Day. All right, well, my last question was, a really hard one, if you guys want to know, it's in the VeggieTales version of Purim, what vegetable was Esther? <laughs> right hand, a rhubarb, or left hand, a leek? Oh. It was a leek. That was an elimination question, too. My tiebreaker was going to be to have you sing my hat. My hat it has three corners, and uh, greatest applause would win. So <laughs> if, if anybody knows, that's a children's song. That was a children's song developed in the, around 1870 or so. So it had nothing to do with Purim that I'm aware of or the American Revolution, or anything like that. So, uh, trivia, uh, fun, a little, maybe a fun, not trivia, but fact about me. So, I grew up in Nebraska, in a town called Lexington, uh, which, I don't know if it was named after Lexington, Massachusetts, or not, but um, certainly it was founded well after Lexington, Massachusetts. Um, but, we took our high school mascot uh, from the American Revolution in Lexington, Massachusetts. So we were, we were called the Minutemen um, from the American Revolution. And, uh, and we wore tri-corner hats in our marching band. So I was in marching band all four years of high school wearing tri-corner hats. So when I found out about Heyman wearing a tri-corner hat, I was like, huh, that oh, reminds me. I used to wear a tri-corner hat all the time. That doesn't make me Heyman, I hope, but uh, it was, there's a little fact about me and my tri-corner hats. I, I used to have a tri-corner hat, a really nice one for marching band. All right, we are going to talk about Purim today, so you can open up the book of Esther. Um, I'm going to take a, take a break from the uh, one, one week from the speaking in tongues, which I talked about two weeks ago. We're going to pick that up in a few weeks. By the way, um, if you have a speaking in tongues experience that you feel like the Lord might be calling you to share with the congregation, uh, and you'd like to let me know about that, um, I will be interested to have more people share uh, in, in two weeks. So please come talk to me if that's something that you have and you feel like the Lord would like you to might like to share and be encouraging to the congregation. 
uh, let me know, please. That'll be in two weeks. Um, so, we celebrated Purim last night and uh, as a congregation. It was really great. I loved it. Um, I, this is the first time we tried doing anything on a Friday night for Purim. Um, it worked out for us roughly in the timing of the week. Uh, Purim is actually on Monday, but uh, um, I, I would love to hear your feedback too um, on that. So if you uh, have some suggestions, what went well, what didn't, uh, like to like to hear that. I thought it was a really great time. Um, I thought the kids did a wonderful job with the play and uh, and and organizing that together. Um, that was purely entirely self-organized by the kids, uh, and they really did a good job. I thought that. Um, some of our, our talent show, talent was awesome. You know, we haven't had a guitarist here in the praise team for a long time, and we had three people playing songs on guitar last night. I mean, I'm just saying, it would be awesome to have like a guitarist on our praise team at some point. Uh, that would be great. Um, we had a lot of other good talent as well. Um, I thought it was, a, it was a lot of fun. The food was really good. Uh, a lot of people here, people I didn't even expect to be here. Uh, really great time, and I'm so glad that we were able to celebrate that together. Right? It's a nice a blessing to have to pull out more tables because you have more people than you expected to come. So Purim is a great holiday. It, it's, it's one that, re, of course, we recount the tale of Esther and Mordecai and King Ahasuerus and the evil Haman. We're really familiar with it. And it's, it's also, it's known to be one of, of the most mirthful and joyous of all the days. Okay, it's, it's telling and retelling the tale of deliverance of the Jews from the plot of destruction. It's really a remarkable story. And it's, it's a great one for us to tell and share with our kids, but it's more than just entertaining. Okay, so, you know, the kids were, they had some fun with it. They were entertaining last night, but it's not simply, you know, just retelling the story. Um, so that it won't be forgotten. That's not why we do it. It's, it's also a time to bring to mind that the story that God, is, God chronicles for us about how he preserves his people. They had their very existence threatened. And the Jewish people have had their existence threatened multiple times throughout their history, and this is just one of those. And this is a story of miraculous deliverance of God's preservation of his people. And that's really important. And so today I'm going to talk to you about Purim, but I'm not going to reread the story. Um, I really want to share with you some background around it and remind us of God's ultimate victory, of his, of ultimately what he is doing, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. So if you want to go uh, on the slideshow to the timeline slide, um, if you can see that up there, uh, it's not great to read, but you can read it a little bit. So um, the entire story of Esther happens between four, 500 and 450 BC. Okay, so uh, about 100 years before this, Israel was taken into, captip- into captivity by Babylon, roughly speaking. Okay, so that exile officially ended 70 years. I'm going to need the lights. So I can't, I can't read my notes. There, there you go. Thank you. Um, it ended, the exile officially ended about 70 years, after 70 years. But not everybody went back to Israel. 
Not everyone went back to Jerusalem. In fact, a lot of people stayed into the areas that they were dispersed in, including Esther's family. They stayed there. Now, as I said, those that would go back to rebuild the temple with Ezra and Nehemiah, they wouldn't do so until about 15 years after the story of Esther happened, okay? The, the, the events with Haman. It would be about 15 years later. Um, this story happened in the city of Susa. We've talked about that. Where is Susa? Um, it's in what would be now modern-day Iran. Uh, the Persians, it's the per- Persian territory. They conquered Babylon. Um, by the, and so Esther, when she came onto the scene, there was a guy named Xerxes, or we also call him Ahasuerus, same guy. He was ruling at that time. And Esther's family, they were Jewish subjects in the kingdom at that time. So they were, they were there. They lived in Susa. And I will tell you that even if they had returned those that, even those that returned to Israel, okay? I want you to remember this, that, that Xerxes or Ahasuerus, he ruled over not just Susa, but he ruled over the entire land, including what is the land of Israel. So even those that returned to Israel after the exile, had Esther not done what she did, they would have suffered the same fate from the plot of Haman. Okay, just because they returned doesn't mean that they were going to be exempt from this or would have been saved from this. Um, they were they would have they were still under the same rule of of Ahasuerus, and and he was a very powerful ruler. He he ruled a huge territory, um, and 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 he was really as I said very powerful. He was known for his drinking. He was known for his lavish banquets that he threw. He was known for having a very harsh temper, as well. And he was also known, unfortunately, also for his sexual appetite. Um, he was not a great man, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. And, and in, 480, or in 483 BC, um, he had been on the throne of Persia for three years, and he held a six-month party celebration, basically a six-month-long party or celebration um, to display and show everybody how rich he was and how wealthy the kingdom was. And... Some people say that, that he was doing that as a strategy to um, basically get the, the uh, nobles of the kingdom and those who would support him militarily because he was about to, to get them on his side because he was about to invade Greece. Um, and he did later. It didn't work out well for him, but he did invade Greece. Um, later, but some people say that this banquet, this six-month celebration was, was meant to uh, persuade those um, to join him in his invasion of Greece. Now, he, he, so he, at, he held this six-month uh, display, and then he held a, ba- a really big banquet afterwards, and, and he told the people, you can have as much to drink as you want. There will be no limit. Again, I told you he liked to drink. He was known for his drunkenness. Um, in fact, in, in ancient Persia, they actually believed that intoxication put them in closer touch with the spiritual world. That was part of their, their act of worship, was getting drunk. And so he was, that was part of what they did. Now, um, 
even in that drunkenness, you know, God was orchestrating things that was happening. Because while he was drunk, he requested Vashti, the queen, to come out. It says in uh, Esther 1.11, in order to display her beauty to the people. For the nobles, and for she was lovely to look at. And she refused. She did not come. And so he banished her from the kingdom at that time. And as I, as I said in our trivia earlier, it would be five years later when he would follow the advice of his advisors and, uh, and find a new queen, that queen that would, become, that would be filled by Esther. Okay, so this is where we're seeing Esther start to enter the story now. And let's talk, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of jump all over the place a little bit. I'm going to give you some background. I'm going to jump on to some different uh, ideas and things that happened in the story. And so I want to talk to you about Esther's name. Okay, um, Esther's name was not just Esther, as you probably already know. Some people very well know this here, just because they named their kids um, <coughs> Williams's. Um, like many Jewish people who lived in lands ruled by other nations, uh, she had two names. Uh, so we are we already know other stories. In the, in the scriptures like this, Daniel and his friends, they were given extra names or new names when they were taken into captivity and they were pressed into service um, in the kingdoms that they lived in. Um, we, we see this in the New Testament, characters like Paul or Saul. He had two names, okay? God did not change his name from Saul to Paul. He just had two names. One was a Hebrew name or a Jewish name and one was a Greek name. Um, or a, a Roman name, and that was very common in that day, in that culture. They had, many people had two names. So Esther had two names. It says in Esther 2.7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father or mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So her name was Esther. Her name was Hadassah. She had two names. One was a Persian name, and one was a Hebrew name or a Jewish name. So Esther is, if you want to look at the, the word in Hebrew, it was, it's the feminine form of the Hebrew word Hadass, which is, means myrtle. Um, this is that shrub, perennial shrub. That ha, it's an evergreen shrub, um, and it's got some white star-shaped flowers, the, the Hadass does. And, uh, and so we get a, a, a picture of this every year at Sukkot, right? That's one of the four species of Sukkot we have uh, is, the, is the myrtle. And so we, we have these. Um, and we see we, do, we typically don't get them with flowers on them, though. But it's a beautiful plant. Um, and it's symbolic in the Bible as a sign of peace. It's symbolic as a sign of God's blessing. If you go to Zechariah 1.11, um, where the angel of the Lord, it says the angel of the Lord stood among the myrtle trees, among the hadas, and it says, and the angel of the Lord said, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and at peace. And, and based on that, um, it's, it's known as a symbolic name for, and prophetic name for rest and for peace. And, you know, perhaps... Um, her Jewish name, Hadassah, was symbolic as well. Uh, that she was okay, not only beautiful like the, uh, like the myrtle plant and flower, but she was also one who would bring blessing and peace to the Jewish people in, in how God used her, right? So, so that's a little bit about 
her name. Now, I want to go to a little bit about her character initially. Um, there was a movie that came out, I don't know, it was in the last 20 years, a Hollywood movie about Queen Esther called One Night with the King. Have you guys seen this before? Um, I'm not sure if I've actually seen it. I've seen like the cover of it. So is it a good movie? To make sure it was like pretty accurate. Well, there's some, this is, this is not, a, there's a less savory aspect to the story. Uh, I, I was thinking about that title and, and um, it's a little bit ironic to me because if you think about what King Ahasuerus was doing in this whole process, it's not really that good, okay? He was setting up a whole series of one nights with the king, with himself, with a new virgin every night. And that was, that was his, his selection process for a, a new queen. Not, not a very uh, good reflection on his character, okay? We would, I would agree with you that his character was not somebody that I would want my daughter to go to, okay? And in Esther, you have to think about her being raised as, a, as an Israelite, as a, as a Jew. Um, she had certain teachings instructed to her, I'm sure, that she did. And so she was forced into a position of either compromise or die, probably, is what would happen. I'm guessing. I, I don't know for sure. But she was forced into a very difficult position that, that directly went up, were opposed to her values as a daughter of Israel. Okay? She, she would be someone who had to, would be forced to be sleeping with a pagan king. Okay? So she could have objected. She could have... Uh, been uncooperative, it would have probably turned out very badly for her. But yet, even in her decision to compromise in this, we see that God is still faithful in what he's doing here, that he's orchestrating this. And she, so Mordecai instructs her to hide the fact that she's Jewish in, in Esther chapter 2, verse 10. And, and what we would say, really, against all odds, Esther found favor with the king and is enthroned as the queen, and we know why, because what, what God is doing, orchestrating this, so that there's someone there in place to oppose Haman at the time that needs to be done. Now, let's talk about Haman a little bit, right? He, he was uh, someone that, uh, we, and we talked about this in Torah study a little bit, um, Haman is known as the son of Hamadetha the Agagite. It says this in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Now, some people would look, just look over that and say, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, there's, there's something interesting about the line of Agag, the Agagites. And, and some, those who have attended here for years, you probably have heard this before. You know the story. Um, but I'm going to re recount it a little bit anyway. Because generations earlier, Israel had secured a victory against a group of people called the Amalekites. Okay, this is the story... Um, it's in that uh, is in Exodus chapter 17. You'll you might remember the story about how Moses, um, when they were fighting, they got attacked and he, he lifted his staff, right? And and they were only victorious when he held his hands in the air. 
And then if he put it down, you know, they were not victorious. And so he had people holding his hands in the air until they were victorious. And that was a fight against this group called the Amalekites. And this was a group that was opposing Israel as they came out of, out of Egypt. And, and God, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, he said that, that these Amalekites would be blotted out, okay? He, after the battle, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back. In Exodus 17, after the battle, um, God made Israel a promise to wipe out the Amalekites. And then he reminded them in Deuteronomy 25, he said that the Amalekites would be blotted out from under heaven. That's what he said. So later on, down the road, um, Israel has a king. His name is King Saul. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, um, from the son of Kish. And, and this king, interestingly, is an ancestor of Mordecai. Mordecai was the line of Benjamin from the son of Kish, he, the line of King Saul. And, um, and King Saul was fighting the Amalekites, of all people. And, uh, and for some reason, they fought, and King Saul spared Agag when they fought. They, the, Israel defeated the Amalekites but King Saul spared Agag. Now, Samuel, the prophet, would later come and kill Agag. It says that he, he butchered him in front of them. Um, so Samuel, the prophet, did kill Agag. But there was a lineage of Agag that did not get destroyed. And so, ironically, later on, Saul actually got killed by an Amalekite. That when, when they were doing battle, that would come back to kill Saul, an Amalekite would. But then there's this line of Agag. Now, we don't have any specific direct evidence, okay, that this line of Agag led to Haman. But I don't, I don't believe in coincidences. I, I do believe that Haman was in that line of Agag, that he was the one who was from the Amalekites, who the adversary, Satan, was using to come against Israel again. And so this story should remind us of the cost of disobedience when we look at uh, Saul. Um, scripture tells us in Exodus 20, verse 5, and in Numbers 14, 18, that the wicked are punished to the third and fourth generation. When, when we sin in our disobedience, that can have a trickle-down effect from generation to generation to generation. And so we should be inspired, even just thinking about this story, towards greater obedience to the Lord, motivating us to have that legacy towards later generations in our life that we're not just looking to ourselves right now, but to later generations after us that are coming after us, that they would be blessed and not cursed. We can look to that story of Saul and realize that a choice that he made affected many generations later after him, negatively speaking there. So oh, that's, you know, that's a, a story, side story about Haman a little bit and his, his lineage. But Haman was, as he was one who wanted to destroy the Jews, it says in, in 3.6, he did so also by consulting his own false gods at the time. Of course, Persia worshipped false gods. Um, and, he, and he was consulting them by casting lots. Now, Casting lots in and of itself wasn't something that had specifically to do with his false gods there. Um, 
casting lots, is, we, we see that happen uh, many times in Scripture. Um, and it was a way that God even used uh, to speak to his people, even um, in Acts chapter 1, when they were replacing Judas as, a, as an apostle or a disciple, they cast lots. They decided, that's how they decided that the Lord would, who he selected uh, for them, that it was a way of God demonstrating who he was, who he was, or what he was, what choice he was making. And, and Haman says in, in Esther 3, 7, he cast lots in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast the pur, that is the lot, this is the pur in Purim, okay, pur just means lot, um, so, or lots in Purim, lots, um, they cast the lot, they cast the purr in the presence of Haman from day to day and month to month up to the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So that's, that's how he was, he was consulting these false gods about when he should destroy the Jewish people. Now, what he was doing in this is he's setting up this spir- a spiritual battle because he's bringing his false gods into it and they... In, in Persian mythology, they worshipped a god named Ahura Mazda. And, and Ahura Mazda was their god of creation, their god of light and truth and goodness. They believed that this was the god who, who anointed and, and ordained kings. So this would be who Xerxes would be worshipping as well at that time. And so Haman's really unwittingly setting up a spiritual battle that we know who will win. We know that God wins this. This is really uh, makes me think of the of, of the battle between, well, how God demonstrated His power over the Egyptian gods. He's also demonstrating His power in this case over the Persian false gods as well, over this this false god Ahura Mazda, who they they believed this is, this name means Lord of Wisdom. That was who the Persians worshipped at this time. This is who Haman worshipped at this time. This is this is the false god, the adversary who is putting these ideas in Haman's mind to go and destroy the Jewish people. Now, we should not be surprised that, that there is hostility, right, against God's people. Um, we, ought to be, we ought to understand that that's something that, that the adversary, the devil, is going to bring. But we have to remember that our battle in our life is not against flesh and blood. Haman was setting up a spiritual battle, and we have to understand that our, our real opponent is the devil. He, he's the one who lurks behind the human opposition that we see in our life. Whether we're seeing evil rulers, or politicians, or, or just flat-out criminals um, and uh, terrorists in our, in, in, in the, around the world, we should know that that the real enemy there is the adversary, is Satan behind them. He's the one who's trying to destroy us. He's the one who's trying to destroy our faith. But we should be able to take courage. We can read stories like this in the story of Esther and understand, and we know that we serve a God who's not just able to protect, but he's a God who avenges as well. This is we understand that uh, in what happened in the story of Esther wasn't just about them protecting themselves. They actually avenged their enemies. It wasn't just about them self-defending, but it was they actually went on the offensive a little bit in the story of Esther. And, and so we should know that even though their circumstances really appeared very difficult, you might call them bleak, 
circumstances, that uh, there is never a valid reason for us to surrender hope. There is never a valid reason for us to surrender hope. Our God, He is able. He is able. He's able to accomplish what we would see as impossible. Things did not look good for Esther, for Mordecai. And God is able to accomplish what we see as impossible. We should take hope out of this story. We should be reminded that there are not, there are, there are not coincidences in our lives. Um, even when the lot has been cast, seemingly reflecting the will of the gods, that we should not be deterred from trusting in the Lord to fulfill his promises. He is going to. Our situations might seem really difficult. They might seem impossible in our life. We might look at the giants in our life, the things that are looking like they're going to destroy us or our people or our nation where we live. We have to remember that God will fulfill his purposes. Nothing can thwart his plan can thwart his plans. He will fulfill his purposes. We have to be confident in that. And we can express this confidence when, when we're facing difficult situations. I, I mentioned last night about going to a time of fasting for, for the fast of Esther. Okay? And we can, we can go into a time of prayer and fasting when we're facing very difficult situations, asking God for his intervention and believing in that too, believing that he's that that intervention will come. Esther and the Jewish people, they fasted. They fasted for, for this time expressing reliance, a deep reliance on God. And their situation looked well beyond their ability to, to, to do anything about, to really affect any change. But God was working, and he was listening, and he was doing. And we just have to continue to remember, I'm going to continue to remind you in this message today, this is my message, is that no power on earth can thwart God's purposes. King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, Haman, you name it, it does not matter. Cannot. God is going to use whomever he wants to do his will as well. Um, he's going to use dreams and visions. Or even in the king's case of King Ahasuerus, he used insomnia. You think it was a coincidence that he couldn't sleep at night when he had to have that story read to him to remind him about Mordecai? Things like that? God's using those. He, that's not just a coincidence. And he's using those to help righteousness prevail, to help glorify himself. He's acting providentially in our everyday lives to fulfill his purpose and his promises. And in the end, in the end, we know that evil is not going to triumph. In the end, evil will not triumph. God is going to vindicate. He will destroy evil. When Yeshua returns, he is going to put the world under his order. And he will destroy evil. Now, in between there, we, we live in a time that is still marred by sin. And we live in a time in this in-between time, and, and there is times when we, we know that even God uses people that are not even savory people to do his will, whether it's good or bad. And he allowed someone to initially destroy the evil here. This was, he actually took King Ahasuerus, who was the one who signed off on Haman's plan, by the way, to then sign to begin to the work to destroy that evil, right? 
He was not a good person. He was the one who signed off. He heard Haman's plan. Haman was the one, of course, who put this in order, but he, he okayed it. King Ahasuerus is the one who, who gave the authority to go and do that. But we read from chapter 7 that the tables get turned in, chap- in Esther, right? Esther is the one who's begging for her life, but the tables get turned so that Haman's the one who's begging for his life. Only God can do that. God was the one who turned the tables. You know that the king left the room as when Haman, when he heard this, he had to go cool off. He comes back in, and it looks like Haman is like in a very compromising position with Esther. And so, and so God used that situation to have the king walk back in, see what was going on, recognize that his queen is being threatened even immediately, and that was enough to execute Haman, to, to initially begin to destroy that evil. And so we should, we should understand in this story of Esther that wicked people will certainly experience shame or condemnation or death, even on this earth. But when they come face to face with God on Judgment Day, they will know that they were not doing the, His will, that they were acting against His will. And they will know that there is no place that they can hide to escape his intense and justified wrath. And it's going to be worse than death. They have, there is a second death coming. Scripture tells us there is a second death that, that they will be cast out of God's presence eternally. And we have to understand that they will be banished. Okay, this, is, this story of Esther, I mean, this banishment of Vashti is, is I mean, she, she wasn't being banished in the sense for really doing something truly evil, but we know that, that people will be banished in the same way. They'll be banished from God, though. And it'll be even worse. Banished from His grace, from His mercy. And, and we know that that's coming. The adversary was publicly defeated by our Messiah Yeshua on the stake, but His ultimate end is coming. In the book of Revelation, it says that He is coming the ultimate end for the adversary comes. If you go to Revelation chapter 20, in verse 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are too, and they shall be tortured day and night forever and ever. His destruction awaits him. Just like Haman was executed, everyone witnessing his demise, so the devil will be destroyed as well. He is condemned eternally in the same way as Haman was. But we have to remember that in this world, there's going to be people like Haman. They are evil people. There will be evil people in our lives. They're going to, they're going to hate you. You will have people in your life that hate you just because of who you are, just because you are a person of God, that you belong to the Lord. They're going to, they're gonna, it might just be a mild distaste, or it could be a murderous hatred, it could, somewhere in the spectrum in between. And we have to remember that God's people are not always spared in this life from those murderous people. But yet that presence of that evil is not any indication that God is powerless. We know 
in the new creation that there will be no evil present. We just have to remember that we're not there yet. And God is not powerless. We live in a fallen and broken world right now that's permeated by the effects of sin. And it might seem like people that are evil have the upper hand. It might seem like that's going to happen and they wipe, or they're wiping out believers around the world. But we know, and I'm telling you this to inspire you and, and remind you, we know where the ultimate victory is. We know that we can have confidence. We know that we can trust in the Lord's timing. Okay? Do you, you have to think about the story of Esther and, and Mordecai and, and how they were wondering, like, timing-wise, how is this all going to work out? What's God going to do? They, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen there and timing-wise, and, and how Esther ended up having more than one banquet to inv- invite the king and Haman to. Um, and it, was, it felt like it was like drawing this out, and when's the right opportunity going to happen? Is it going to be now? Is it going to be now? Is it going to be later? And, and it did come, but they just had to continue to trust the Lord and when that, when that time would come. They didn't know, and we don't know specific details always, but we know that the Lord is going to work in his timing. And we know that ultimately, he holds the victory, even if we're seeing evil triumph temporarily. So I want to just encourage you in that. I want to encourage you too about God fulfilling his promises. Okay? This, the story of Purim is part of God fulfilling his promises. We look to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put animosity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head and you will crush his feet. The promise of a, these are the promises of a Messiah coming eventually. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. My heart's desire is to make you a great nation, God talking to Abraham, to bless you, to make your name great so that you will, may be a blessing. My desire is to bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Where is he t- who's he talking about? Who blesses all the families of the earth? It's our Messiah, Yeshua. But he hasn't come yet in that, in that context. He's giving a promise to Abraham. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord speaking to David, so your house and your kingship will be secure forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. God is promising a king on the throne, not just, a, not just some human king like Solomon would be, but an eternal king, a Messiah king. So we know that these promises are there. God created mankind to be in perfect relationship with him. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They broke that relationship. They were banished from the garden. But yet God said he will restore that relationship. He will restore that perfection. And he begins to work in fulfilling that through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he gives these promises through King David. Yet Israel continues to rebel. And he says, I will put you in exile. I will. I will take you away. But I'm going to bring you back. I'll put you in exile, but I'm going to bring you back. Because I'm going to be faithful to my promises. And he did. He did that under King Cyrus. He brought them back. And the promise of the coming Messiah was still yet to be fulfilled at that time. 
And the adversary knew, even in the time of Esther, he knew of the promise. These promises were not hidden. And the adversary knew of it too. And he knew there, there would be a coming Messiah. He just didn't know when. He doesn't know. He's not omniscient. The adversary doesn't know what's coming tomorrow. He, he, he doesn't know all of things. He knows what God has written in his word, though. He knew that, something was go- that somebody was going to come, that a Messiah would come. And he was going to act through Haman to try and destroy any possibility of it happening. And that's what happened. He was working towards that. Yet God used Esther to thwart those plans, just like he uses any one of us today to accomplish his purposes. The Messiah was still yet to come in the time of Esther. He has now come and we recognize our Messiah, Yeshua. Now, that Messiah, though, isn't mentioned in the book of Esther at all. In fact, God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. We've talked about this before, too, probably. You know, sometimes, though, we have ways of talking about God where we don't mention God directly. Have you guys ever had a conversation with somebody where you talked about, but you didn't actually say what you were talking about? Sometimes we do that about God, right? I think that the writer of the story of Esther does this really well. In Esther chapter 4, um, cousin Mor- her cousin Mordecai, he calls on her to risk her own life. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Do you not think in your soul, do not think in your soul that you will escape in the king's household more than all the Jews? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have attained royal status? for such a time as this. Now, there have been many sermons preached on for such a time as this, uh, many messages in that sense, and, and I really think that Mordecai was implying that Esther's presence in the palace was of God. He didn't say God, but he was saying God without saying God, if you know what I mean. He was, he was saying, you have a strategic position. God's going to use you. He has a purpose for you being there. So don't blow it. Don't waste it. Don't, don't think that, that you can just be there and enjoy that life. You're not going to escape. And so God isn't directly mentioned in the book of Esther, but you might say that he is shouting in silence from the story. He's shouting in the silence of the story. Uh, and I would say this not just because of what's written there in that verse that I read about Mordecai's statement, but I would say that if you, you just look at all the twists and turns in the story and everything that's happening, and you're like, that, there is no way. There is no way that that's just a coincidence. That, that just any of those things just happened, that God is not weaving all these things to happen to point to him to favor the preservation of his people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. I can read that, and the only thing I can conclude in the story of Esther is that God is present throughout the story. And sometimes we have these circumstances in our lives, too, where we know without a doubt that God is present. He's navigating. He, is, he, he, might, he might not be mentioned in any of the conversations that are happening in your life, and any of the circumstances that are happening in your life specifically, but you, can, you know because of what's happening that God is directing it. He is orchestrating events in your life, and you are confident of these things just because you can see his fingerprints on it. Amen? You probably had some of these things happen in your life. 
And it might not be somebody specifically talking to you about God, but you just know by the Spirit that's within you, you know what's happening. So you should be confident in that, and it should be encouraging for all of us here that God is always there. He is present. We are not alone, even when it's, it's not obvious. So that's really what I wanted to share with you today. Just some background, just some, a little bit of encouragement about who God is, what He's doing, that He is working actively, that we shouldn't be discouraged when we're seeing evil seemingly triumph temporarily. We know that God demonstrates his deliverance of his people. We know that that's going to happen. We know what the ultimate end is. And so when we're, we're reading the stories like Esther, we know that, that this is a, something that we must celebrate the story of Purim. I just want to read the end of it and just talk a little bit about the very end of this and the celebration of Purim. It says in, in Esther chapter 10, or 9, I'm sorry, starting in verse 20, it says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, urging them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of Adar every year as the days when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month when their sorrow was turning into joy and their mourning into celebration, these were to be days of feasting, celebration, and sending presents of food to one another and giving gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the commemoration that had begun to do what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and cast the purr, that is the lot, to ruin and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he issued a written edict that the wicked scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged from the gallows. For this reason, these days were called Purim, from the word Pur. Therefore, because of everything in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews established and took upon themselves and upon their descendants, and upon all who joined with them, that they would commemorate these two days in the way prescribed at the appointed time every year. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and every province and every city. These days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor their remembrance perish from their descendants. And thus we celebrate Purim. It's a holiday that God didn't give originally, you know, as one of the seven feasts. Uh, when he brought them out of Egypt. Um, he gave seven times of observance to go with the weekly Shabbat. It's a, it's a separate holiday. It's one of the two more well-known minor holidays in Judaism. It's instructed in Esther to be celebrated. The other one, of course, is Hanukkah that we know about. These mark events that happened in Scripture, they're good for us to celebrate, but we also want to remember, again, this is one I want to close with, that Purim is a stark reminder that every enemy of God's people, and every enemy of God himself, will be ultimately defeated. There will only be one winner. There's only one. God will triumph alone. He will triumph in the end. So just remember from this story of Esther, Remember that in your circumstances in your life, either direction, they can change, they can be reversed miraculously. We, we know 
that, that God does these things. He did these things for Esther. We know, we know, and you know, even in your own life, that this is what Yeshua has done for you. Because each one of us was a sinner. And Messiah died for us, yet while we were still in our sin. He died for us at the stake. He died to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. And he gave us life that's free from the condemnation that would come. And only Yeshua, not a king like Ahasuerus, but only Yeshua can rescind the edict of death ultimately. And only he is one who can issue a counter decree for life. That is only Yeshua in our life. And that's the good news that we need to share. And you need to know. And you need to embrace. We all need to embrace that. Kids, you need to embrace that. <laughs> there were some people in Esther's time that were living in exile. Just a couple of minor notes in the end, just to remind us. They lived in exile. Esther was living in exile. We live in exile too. We are, we are strangers and aliens in this world. So just remember that. 1 Peter 2.11, we are, we are strangers and aliens. We're not to be grown overly attached to where we are. We have, a, we have an eternal home to look forward to. We know the end is coming and what the end holds. And we're to live to please God. Realize, though, that in between now and then, God can use us, even in our faults. Esther wasn't perfect. Mordecai wasn't perfect. The people around them weren't perfect. He can use us. He can use them. He can use us for his purposes. We know that he can use us, so allow him to use you. Operate in hope, knowing that you know the eternal end. Knowing that you know, without a doubt, that he can direct circumstances. He can reverse them in your life. He places you where he wants to place you. He has put you here for a reason. For such a time as this. He has put you here for a reason. He's put people in your life for a reason. And he is moving, ultimately, in the broader scheme of things, in the big picture. He is moving all of history towards this conclusion. He's moving it to the time when Yeshua is going to return. And he's going to rule forever. And we have that hope. We have that confidence. And I'm so excited for that. So I, I love the story of Esther. I love its reminders for us in so many different ways. Don't be intimidated by the evil around you. Don't be intimidated by political decisions you don't agree with. You think things are going awry. Those are all limited. Those are all temporary. They are no match for God. <laughs> they are no match for God. Remember that. He's going to reign forever. He is the unrivaled ruler. Remember that his power is real. Even if it's unseen. Even if it's not even spoken. We know that. So I'm going to stop there. I'm going to ask the boys. We got, already got the table. Bring it over. Come down and get a cup of juice and a piece of bread for the kiddish.